please turn with me can anybody hear this please turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 6 verses 7 through 15 Acts chapter 6 verses 7 through 15 This is the authoritative, infallible, self-attesting word of Almighty God himself. Let us listen to it with reverence. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemies, blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man seeth not to blaspheme, to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Father in heaven, we thank thee that despite the wickedness and stupidity and obstinacy and apostasy of this country and of the church which calls itself Christ, that we still live in a country where the gospel is preached and that though we have deserved to have our candle removed from us, You have not seen fit yet to do that. We thank you, Father, that you have committed the keys of the kingdom to ministers of your word, and that by the preaching of the gospel, sin is destroyed. Men and women and children are brought to the throne of Christ where they can find forgiveness and mercy. Father, we beg you to forgive us for all the times that we have sat under the ordinance of preaching and have so little profited by it. We beg you to forgive us that our ears have been dull, that our hearts have been hardened, and that we have gone away like the man of James who looks in a mirror and steadfastly beholding himself turns around and forgets what he looks like. So, Lord, have we looked into your word when it has been exposited by Phil or by Glenn, and so have we been. But, Father, where our sin abounds, where our slowness abounds, where the dullness of our heart abounds, thy grace does abound more. So, Father, please, send forth thy Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding that we today may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Break up our fellow ground and send forth the rain of the gospel into our hearts. Let thy word, which is sharper, and more powerful than any two-edged sword, come and slash and destroy the sin in our hearts. 
And Father, when you have destroyed our sin, when you have exposed our sin to us, let the gospel do only what it can do. After it has destroyed and wounded, let it heal. For only the gospel, Father, can wound and heal. Only the gospel, Father, can bind and break up. Only the gospel can destroy and build up at the same time. We ask you, Lord Jesus, that these sayings which we hear would sink down into our ears and that by the grace of your Holy Spirit, these words would burn within our hearts just as the words of Moses and David and Isaiah burn within the hearts of the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus with you. Be pleased, Lord Jesus, despite our sin, to be with us, be gracious to us, and let us rejoice that we can hear the gospel preached. Let us rejoice that our names are written in the book of life. And Father, for those here in the congregation this morning whose names perhaps have not yet been written in the book of life, let this be the beginning. Let this preaching be the beginning of their turning from the power of Satan to the power of God. We ask, Father, that where thy gospel is truly preached in, in this land, that it would be effectual and powerful and mighty for tearing down strongholds and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. And that this morning in thy churches, that all who name the name of Christ would not merely depart from iniquity, but would bring every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And Father, in those churches where the gospel is not truly preached, please do unto those pastors as you did to Balaam. Though he would curse Israel, yet you overturned him, and he blessed Israel. Let not one word of thy gospel today fall void to the earth, but let it be mighty for converting people to Christ Jesus and for converting this nation again to the glory of the gospel, for the glory of Christ, for the honor of the name of the Holy Spirit, and Father, for the hallowing of thy name and the coming of thy kingdom, we pray. Amen. Last week we began to look at the contrast between a bankrupt, frustrated Judaism and the fullness of a confident Christianity. Here is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of power, full of wisdom. And uh, verse 10 says that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. You see, the truth can stand on its own two feet, not just because uh, it is true, but because God stands behind uh, that truth. But uh, not all positions uh, can. And frequently, when people are losing an argument, they don't give up. They just uh, use uh, further means of digging in their heels and supporting their position. And we looked at some of the unfair tactics uh, that these people were using to try to defend uh, their turf. And uh, the application, I think, is pretty obvious when we look at uh, the modern persecution of the church uh, in this country and in other countries as well. But we didn't just want to point the finger out there. We wanted to look at ways in which we as believers have fallen into these methods that are used down here below rather than using the weapons that God has uh, given to us. And I'll just give a real brief uh, review here. How many times do we use that first method of secrecy? Uh, do Christians go behind somebody's back 
and uh, badmouth them there rather than an open dialogue with this person about what is going on. That's to use an ungodly method that these Jews used. Secondly, just as they used inducements to pressure people into siding with them, Christians many times have used social pressure and other kinds of inducements uh, as well. Um, it can be husbands and wives manipulating the, each other or children manipulating the parents or maybe the husband or the wife going out to sleep on the sofa. And they may have a good, uh, a good goal, but the method really is not godly. You see, it's not enough to have good goals. We have to have the right methods to get us to those goals as well. It's one of the things on every one of these points uh, that we have seen. Uh, Jay Adams is, uh, constantly is harping on Christian psychologists for exactly that reason. He's saying, yeah, many of these Christian psychologists do have good goals that they're wanting to get people to, but we've got to have biblical methods to get us to those goals as well. And um, uh, this was an unbiblical method. Anyway, moving on, third unfair method that these Jews tried to use was a disinformation campaign, or what some people call a smear campaign. And we saw that sometimes Christians have fallen into using exactly this type of thing with others, or if they've not used it, they're at least believing the disinformation campaigns that they read in the media out there. And they're believing it, not because they've investigated, but because they want to believe it. And uh, again, we have seen that uh, a Proverbs calls us not to believe every accusation we hear, even if it's an accusation against your enemy against somebody that you don't like. A fourth method that we're warned about is inflaming the emotions in order to get people to make decisions without thinking things through. That phrase, they stirred up the people, uh, the Greek indicates it's a stirring up of the emotions. Now, not everybody is as prone to that kind of manipulation as others are, uh, but uh, uh, we need to recognize that this is something that can so easily take place in our own lives. It's not just lynchings where people make snap decisions emotionally that they later regret. Uh, this happens over and over again in people's lives. We do stupid things because we're thinking with our emotions. Actually, you can't think with your emotions, but you know the expression that's made there. And it, it really is a, an indication that their position is weak. Um, Anger many times snuffs out a person's intelligence. Resorting to violence uh, to prove a point. It's a fifth sign of bankruptcy of their position. Now, sometimes people think that's not bankruptcy. It's a sign of uh, their power, you know, when there is a violence against the Christian church in, in China and in India and, you know, um, countries like Indonesia. They think, well, that's a sign that uh, communism and Hinduism and Islam is strong. But the reason that they're lashing out at the church more now than they have in the past is because they are losing great numbers of people to Christianity. Christianity's triumphing. And they can't retain these people on the merits of their position. They're trying to use force to maintain their positions. They're frustrated. Legal attacks, digging up dirt, intruding the power of the state, uh, methods 6, 7, and 8, are not only, again, used by unbelievers out there, but Christians many times resort to, resort to these worldly tactics. And the last unfair method was the use of intimidation. And we saw on all of these methods, we need to understand how easy it is for our flesh to succumb to these tactics. 
It's very easy to fall into that. Just go the default. If we're not consciously thinking, Lord, I need in this problem, in this situation, to be relying upon the weapons that you have given uh, to me. In complete contrast to all of this, Stephen uses resources that are not fleshly in his arguments with uh, his opponents, and I think we can learn a lot from how he conducted himself. He demonstrates, again, the fullness of a confident Christianity. David Yarbrough tells the story from one of Max Lucado's books of a, a lady who lived on the coast of Ireland back at the turn of the century, and she was a... Uh, a, a kind of a miser, very frugal, did not like to spend money, and so the neighbors were surprised that she was one of the first adopters of electricity. And um, uh, one of the meter readers came to her home one time and asked her how she liked her electricity. Oh, I like it quite fine. He says, well, I'm a little bit puzzled because your meter shows that there's scarcely any usage of your electricity. And she, he said, do you use it? And she says, oh, yeah, every, every evening when the becomes dark, I switch on the lights until I get all my candles lit, and then I switch them off. <laughs> and Yarbrough goes on to say, she tapped into the power, but did not use it. Her house is connected, but not altered. Don't we make the same mistake? We too, with our souls saved, but our hearts unchanged, are connected, but not altered. Trusting Christ for salvation but resisting transformation, we occasionally flip on the switch, but most of the time we settle for the shadows. And I'm wondering if that parable describes you. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be full of power? I've I had Christians uh, tell me that they have never experienced anything remotely resembling what went on in the book of Acts, and I believe them. But I think it's a sad thing when Christians are devoid of the power that is uh, uh, talked about in the book of Acts, and they are just as bankrupt as the unbelieving Jews in chapter 6. Well, not just as bankrupt, because every Christian has some of the power of God. But there's a difference between having the Spirit and being full of the Spirit. There is a difference between having the power of God in your life, and you couldn't even be a believer if you didn't have some of that power in your life, and being full of power. There's a difference between having a little faith and being full of faith. You know, Jesus complained about his disciples, oh, ye of little faith. You know, he is not satisfied with anything short of the fullness of his, uh, his uh, blessings in our lives. And we should not settle for anything less than fullness either. Uh, now, before I get into the specific descriptions of the fullness, let me try to describe what the word fullness means in the Greek. And I think one of the ways of doing that is to see how the word is used in other contexts. <clears throat> this word can be used of disease. Luke describes a man who was full of leprosy, Luke 5, verse 12. And I think you can picture that. He doesn't just have one or two spots of leprosy on him. His whole body is covered with leprosy from head to toe. Uh, the dominion of this leprosy over his skin is not just begun, it is uh, very, very advanced. This word can also be used of emotions. In John 16, Christ told his disciples that he was going to leave them, and in verse 6 it says they were full of sorrow. Sorrow dominated them, it consumed them at that point. They were under the influence of sorrow so that it affected the way they acted, it affected the way that they thought. In 
Luke 5, verse 26, describes the disciples witnessing a miracle and being filled with fear. Have you ever panicked, uh, been filled with fear? When that happens, you know how fear can control you. Uh, It's one of those emotions that does not tend to exist with other emotions at the same time. It just kind of pushes all of the other emotions out of the way. It can dominate you and influence your actions. In fact, it can make you act irrationally. Uh, Luke 6, verse 11, describes what happened to the Pharisees after Christ healed the man with the withered hand. It says they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So, whereas before they may have been controlled by indifference, uh, apathy, um, here they are being driven with this rage. It's motivating them to try to do Christ uh, in. Filling can also be used of control or domination by alcohol. The New Testament uses the term full of wine to mean someone who is drunk, someone who is under the influence. Okay, He's under the control of wine. He's dominated by that wine. Acts 2, verse 13. And so when you read phrases in the New Testament like full of darkness, full of deceit, full of fraud, Think of these people as being controlled and dominated by those things. It's not just one or two times where they have darkness or fraud or some of those things in their lives. Their lives are characterized by that. They're dominated by those particular sins. Romans 1.29 lists a whole series of things that can control or dominate people with the word full. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy. And then he goes on to list other things that they are full of. Now, some people are more dominated by one sin than they are by another sin, but every unbeliever, it says, is under the dominion of sin. Now, well, that is a background of what full means. I want us to look at this idea of being under the influence, under the control, under the dominion of something with these five categories that we're going to look at. First of all, full of the Spirit. Verse 3 says, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 5 says, Stephen was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And so right from the get-go, we see that our resources do not come from ourselves. Um, that was the problem with some of the methods that were being used earlier. There are methods any pagan can use, you know. Uh, There are methods uh, that were leaning heavily upon the flesh, and yet what does Paul say? Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Now, there was nothing that his flesh could produce that was of any value. James says, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And the same is true of the Spirit. And so the first essential thing that we need to empower us in our ministry is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Right from Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it indicates that there is nothing we can do that's of value if the Spirit is not empowering us to do that. In fact, uh, Jesus told them, don't even bother going out into missions, not in so many words, but until the Spirit has come upon you. Uh, they were to wait. Acts 1, 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. And so I do not think we can overstate the importance of the infilling, the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jonathan Edwards said that there has not been anything of any importance that has been accomplished from the time of Adam to the present that has not been produced by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, of course, Jonathan Edwards goes on to say that our flesh can produce counterfeits. It can produce counterfeit joy and peace and patience. And so it's not enough to say, hey, we need to be joyful. Uh, It's the joy of the Lord that is our strength, but it's not just any joy that is our strength. It needs to be a joy that comes from God himself. Now, having said that, let me give you five clarifications I think that need to be carefully laid out because there have been so many errors that have been made on this whole issue of the filling of the Holy Spirit. First clarification, we cannot earn the filling of the Spirit. I think this is so important because there's several movements, not just one, there's several movements in Christianity that indicate that in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to have sufficient sanctification, sufficient cleansing of ourselves, or sometimes they will talk about sufficient emptying of ourselves of sin so that the Spirit will come in. As one pastor worded it, the Spirit will never indwell a dirty cup, is what he said. Now, what does that imply? implies we can clean the cup ourselves, right? Which is a ridiculous concept. But anyway, there are people who are striving and just emotionally troubled because they're trying to prepare their vessels so that the Spirit will come and infill them. They'll agonize sometimes for months. Well, the Scripture indicates you cannot be sanctified at all unless you have the power of the Holy Spirit. almost got my feet baptized down here. <laughs> um. Here's how D.L. Moody uh, opposed this viewpoint. One time he held up a glass and he asked people, how do I get all of the air out of this glass? And one man immediately popped up and he said, well, you could get a, a vacuum pump and pump all of the air out. And he said, no, no, that wouldn't work because the glass would shatter. And anyway, even if you had a pump and a glass that wouldn't shatter, you still wouldn't be able to get absolutely all of the air out of it. Here's how you get the air out of that cup. And he got a pitcher and he poured it into the glass and the water filled it up. He says, that's how you get the air out of it. Pretty easy, right? And that's the same way, he said, that we have the fleshly impulses that are in us right from the time that we are conceived more and more displaced. It's by receiving the Holy Spirit by faith. It's the Spirit who displaces sin. It's not we who displace sin through our self-reformation. Uh, Galatians uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 makes it very, very clear, and you can read that sometime for yourself, that we cannot receive the Spirit through self-reformation. It's by the hearing of faith. He says, foolish Galatians. You know, did you receive the Spirit by the hearing of the law or, or the hearing of faith? It's by faith that, that it comes. In, John ch- in Luke chapter 11, Jesus asked the disciples, what parent among you does not give good things to his child, the things that are needed? Then he goes on to say, how much more, and I love that phrase that occurs in the scripture, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He is there for the asking. Uh, There is no earning of the Spirit. And so here's the question I want to ask you. Do you start every single day asking your generous Father, who is so generous and uh, delights in giving the Holy Spirit, do you ask him, Father, I need your filling for this day so that I walk in your Spirit, and everything that I do, I do by the empowering of your Holy Spirit. In John 7, Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's an abundance, isn't it? But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. It's simply faith that receives the Spirit. We do not earn it. Second, The filling of the Spirit is not a one-time event. 
Too many people equate the filling of the Spirit with the baptism of the Spirit, and they are waiting for a one-time event, or maybe they think that they have experienced a one-time event in which they have been filled with the Spirit, and after that they can go on uh, sailing uh, without any worries. Well, filling is something that happens over and over again. It can be lost, it can be regained. But the baptism of the Spirit only happens once. It can never be lost. All believers are baptized into the body, but not all believers are filled. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's a past tense that he's using. He says it's happened to every single believer, no exceptions. The moment that they have believed in Christ, from that moment on, and from Pentecost on, this is the way it happened, they are baptized into the body. And so nowhere in the Scripture are we commanded to be baptized in the Spirit, but we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. In fact, in Ephesians 5.18, it uses the present ongoing tense that we're to continually Go on being filled with the Spirit. Third, the filling of the Spirit brings the character of the Spirit into our lives. And I think that makes sense. Wherever, you'd, wherever the Spirit is, you'd think that things would begin to look like the Spirit, right? And let me give you some examples. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13, it says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Why? because the Spirit is called the Spirit of liberty. And there has been a relationship of liberty between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that the Spirit ushers us into. And so whenever a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, he, there is always going to be liberty in his life, not bondage. We can't help but be ushered into liberty. Another example, Acts 13.52 says that when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were filled with joy. Why? Because the Bible calls the Spirit the Spirit of joy. Here's how John Piper worded it. The Spirit who fills us is the Spirit of joy that flows between God the Father and God the Son because of the delight that they have in each other. Therefore, to be filled with the Spirit means to be caught into the joy that flows among the Holy Trinity and to love God the Father and God the Son with the very love with which they love each other. Now, in that particular article, he stopped at joy and love, but really, the fruit of the Spirit, all the fruit of the Spirit, will be present when the Spirit is uh, present in His fullness. Now, the reason I mention this is I think it's one of the tests, one of several tests, by which we can um, detect counterfeits. Uh, there are people who claim to be, uh, have had a remarkable filling of the Holy Spirit, and they're happy, there's no doubt about that, but they are carnal. They are self-centered. Uh, they are um, very rude and impatient. And what they have done is they have confused an emotional experience that they have had, and there's no doubt about it, there was emotions involved. They've confused that with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that there won't be emotions involved. I think frequently there are emotions involved when there is the filling of the Holy Spirit. But the thing is, there will be the fruit of the Spirit when the Spirit in His fullness has come uh, into our lives. He's the Spirit of holiness. And so you'd expect that if a person is full of the Spirit of holiness, even if he's not fully holy, he's going to at least have the hungering and thirsting after righteousness that Matthew 5 talks about. 
Uh, when you're full of fear, fear supplants other emotions. When you're full of leprosy, leprosy supplants the healthy skin. When you're full of the Holy Spirit, He is going to be supplanting the world, the flesh, and the devil in your life. Fourth, the Spirit is given sovereignly. He is not a commodity that can be traded. He is a person who does as He pleases. But praise God, He, he is pleased to uh, give us his fullness when we humbly entreat him. The ten times you find the filling of the Spirit mentioned in the book of Acts, you get the distinct impression that there are at least two things that are present. First, the Spirit comes when and where he pleases. You cannot schedule him. You can't schedule a revival. I don't care how hard you try and how hard you carefully plan that revival. It's the Spirit who determines that. And the second thing is he comes in response to faith. Now, how can both be true? Well, I guess part of the answer is that um, the Spirit is the one who gives the faith, and he's the one that determines when that faith will be given and when the revival will come. The fifth thing that you find in Acts, in connection with the filling of the Spirit, is that every time a person is filled or refilled with the Spirit, it moves that person and empowers that person for service. And so one of the things I think we need to continually pray day by day is that the Spirit of God would fill us, would dominate us, dominate and characterize the way we act and the way that we feel. Being full of the Spirit does not guarantee you won't be persecuted. You can see that definitely in the book of Acts. It doesn't guarantee that you won't be martyred or that people will like you, but it does guarantee that your actions will have the blessing and the empowering of God upon them and that they will count for eternity. Well, all of the rest of the other fullnesses are a necessary consequence of the fullness of the Spirit. They flow from that. We find that Stephen was full of Scripture and gospel truth. Now, this makes sense because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He is the, the author of the Scriptures. And so he is always motivated to get you into his Scriptures, into his truth. Anybody who speaks of the full, being full of the Spirit who despises the Word of God is full of something, but it isn't the Spirit, okay? Uh, back at the time of the Reformation, there was a group of people um, that were called the Anabaptists, and some of these groups were pretty wild. So, some of the Anabaptists were not too bad, but some believed in communal marriage and communal property and all kinds of strange things. And there was this one group that Luther was dialoguing with, who had ditched the scriptures. They said, we don't need the scriptures. We got the spirit. Why would you want to read a dead book like that? You know, we're going straight to the source. We're going to the spirit. And they were chanting, you know, when uh, Luther was talking about the importance of the word, they were chanting spirit, spirit, spirit. And he says, I slap your spirit on the snout. He knew it was not the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit would never despise his own word. It could not be the Holy Spirit. He knew it was from the devil. I slap your spirit on the snout, he said. So be very cautious when you find people who claim to be full of the spirit, but they divorce the spirit from the word. They despise the word. So in this chapter, it wasn't merely Stephen's opinions that were spreading. Look at verse 7. It says it was the word of God that spread. It wasn't just his opinions that he was chairing in chapter 7, which Lord willing we'll get to next week. No, he was so full of the Word of God that it was the Word of God that spilled out. You know, when people bump up against you in terms of persecution or anything else, you need to be so full of the Word of God that the Word of God spills out, not cuss words and other things like that. 
The Word of God needs to be there, and if it is, you're going to be an effective soldier in His kingdom. Now, the Word of God is the second resource that comes from outside of ourselves. Every one of these resources are not things that come from, from us. We need to put the Word inside of us, but it comes from outside. Because it's divine, it's God's Word, it has a power that goes way beyond our own reasoning and our own words. Only the Scripture has the power to pierce through the toughest armor that Satan and the flesh and the world might erect around people to protect themselves from that Uh, from the gospel. And so rather than getting frustrated with your child, you know, when there's spiritual blindness in your child's life, just realize that's the way people naturally are. Say, praise God. I am thankful, God, that you have given a promise that you will give your spirit, not just to me, but to my children after me. And so I claim your spirit. I'm going to use your word. And by faith, I'm going to be applying this word in my child's life. We need to have a confidence in his word. Hebrews 4.12 says... For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, did you notice how smoothly he transitioned for what the word of God was doing in our lives to what God is doing in our lives? Now, even grammatically, it just doesn't seem quite right to be switching because the he seems to be, the antecedent seems to be the word of God. But theologically, it is absolutely accurate because you cannot, you cannot abstract the word from God. This is God speaking to us. The word is God uh, speaking to us. This Hebrews passage says God's word is living. It is powerful. It's not a dead letter. It has all of the power of God behind it. And if he is speaking through his word, you can bet that it will have just as much effectiveness as God's word had back in Genesis chapter 1 when God spoke and the worlds came into existence. It's the word. Sometimes it's an obscure scripture that God will cause to pierce through into somebody's heart and take them from blindness into blinding light, you know, like he did with... Saul of Tarsus. And so no discipline of our children should be unaccompanied by the Word of God. One of the books that I really appreciate on child discipline is by Bruce Ray, and it's called Withhold Not Correction. Now, what's unique about that book is the way he helps you to bring the Word of God to bear constantly in the discipline so that it's not just your authority and your words that you're disciplining through. It's the Word of God that's brought to bear. I highly recommend it. Jay Adams highly recommends uh, the book. Uh, When talking with politicians, bring the Word of God to bear. Uh, When you're witnessing to unbelievers, bring the Word of God to bear. Your Your conversion story and your own testimony alone is not going to convert. It needs to be accompanied with the Word of God, which has a power behind it. It's the only offensive weapon listed in Ephesians chapter 6. So we're not to use the carnal weapons of this world. Why would we want to? When God has given us incredibly powerful weapons. Next, verse 8 says that Stephen was full of faith. A faith is another weapon listed in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a shield of faith that enables us to go into the deadliest parts of the battle, facing all of those arrows. But it's not just a weapon. It's a way of life by which we receive the resources of heaven and we uh, uh, bring them uh, into life. 
And so it's important that we understand what it means to be full of faith. There's a divine part of the equation. There's a human part of the equation. God gives it. We exercise it. And I'm going to look at both sides. First of all, faith is a gift of God. It is not something that we drum up. Now, this is important correction to error as well, because I have known a number of people have gotten themselves into all kinds of trouble by what they call stepping out in faith, and it really was not stepping out in faith, it was stepping out in presumption. Faith is not something we work up in ourselves. We say, oh, I've got to believe harder, believe harder. It's not something we work up. It's God the Spirit who gives us faith. And in my footnotes here, I've got a bunch of verses that show that. I'm not going to give them to you this morning. Let me just give you three phrases. Acts 3.16, the faith which comes through him. Acts 18.27, they believed through grace. Ephesians 1.19, his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And so it has a divine origin. It's not a weapon of the world. But there is a human dimension to faith as well. After all, it's we who believe, we who trust. Uh, We're the ones who are exercising faith. And since faith, according to the Scripture, involves the mind, the emotions, and the will, all three need to be in place if we are to have a, a full faith. According to Hebrews 11, there is no true faith where there is no action. There is no true faith where there is no knowledge, and there is no true faith where there is no agreement. Calvin spoke of those three parts of faith as being the notitia, which is the knowledge, the ascensus, which is agreement, and the fiducia, which is the trust, those three elements. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the details of how we are to live by faith. I've preached on that before, but I do want to give you two things that are frequently absent when people are not full of faith, two things that are absent. First one is verbal affirmations. Over and over again in the Bible, you find that a person's mouth is connected with how we express our faith. Okay, God gives the faith. We are responsible to express that faith. There's two ways we express it. One is verbally. We express our faith. If you believe in your head one thing, but then your mouth affirms the exact opposite, you're not expressing faith. You're expressing doubt. You're like a wave of the sea. You know, one moment you're believing, and the next you're not. And James says, God's not going to give you anything if, you're, if, you, if, if you act like that. How many times do we pray for healing? And then as soon as we have finished healing, we start talking as if we know God's not going to answer. Okay? Uh, we're affirming the exact opposite. Let me give you some scriptures. Romans 10.8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. So where is the word of faith? It's in your mouth, and it's something that is expressed. It's a word of faith, so that the passage goes on to say, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So genuine internal faith is going to express itself outwardly in two ways. One is verbally, the other is through action. We're just dealing with the verbal confession that with the mouth we are confessing that we believe what God's word is saying. Um, 1 Timothy 6 verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. By the way, what is a good fight? Yeah, have you ever fought a good fight that you didn't win? It's a bad fight, you know, if you lose, right? 
So he's saying, fight the good fight. He's saying, we're, we're, we're on the winning side of this. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's how we're to fight the good fight of faith is with a confession, a confession of faith. Hebrews 4.14, let us hold fast our confession. Luke 6.45, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Many times our mouths betray the lack of faith that goes on in the heart. Romans 15.6 says that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so your mouth needs to back up what your mind is saying. Revelation 12.11, and they overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And so, yes, the blood of the Lamb, absolutely essential, but the word of our testimony is absolutely essential as well in overcoming Satan. And since Satan can't read our minds, I think we need to say things out loud. We need to say, make affirmations uh, out loud concerning our uh, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we uh, wield the weapon. Silently affirming it in our minds is not enough. So they verbally affirmed their agreement with the Scripture, and it says, by doing so, they overcame Satan. This is the way that Jesus resisted Satan in the wilderness. He verbally agreed with God's word rather than with the temptation. Now, our minds, many times, when the temptation comes, starts to rationalize, and, boy, it's not really that bad, is it? And uh, he says, no, we're going to agree with God's word, and we verbally say so. And that's a help against our flesh. It's a help against the world out there. It's a help against Satan, as Satan is attacking you as well. And there are many, many other scriptures which show our mouth is a big part of whether we are full of faith or not. Second area is taking action. I'm not going to spend much time on this because I've preached on this a number of times, but I will point you once again to Hebrews chapter 11, which describes over and over again that faith always takes action. You look at all the actions, circle all the action verbs in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and I think you will be quite surprised uh, by that. And so when you say that you're praying in faith for somebody's salvation, but you have never once witnessed to that person, you've got a dead faith, okay? If you say that by faith you're trying to overcome your fears, but you never step out in what the Scripture calls the obedience of faith, because you're scared, you're saying, well, I want God to take away my fear first, you, you're not expressing faith. Faith goes forward despite the fears. Faith is always active. You cannot be passive. As Jim Elliott says, faith is designed to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for Him. And so those who are full of faith always have those two things there. There's going to be verbal affirmation that agrees with God's Word. There's going to be actions that agree with God's Word. Two more. Stephen was also full of power uh, in verse 8. Now, the authorities appeared to be in power at this point, and certainly legally they were in power, but Stephen was the one who really was in power in the spiritual realm in this situation. And as I mentioned last week, it really didn't matter uh, whether Stephen died or whether he was alive. His power was not dependent upon the fact that he was alive because that power was at work before he died. It continued to be at work after he died. There was nothing that the authorities could do to stop that power. It was essentially God backing up what Stephen was saying. 
Now, we shouldn't think of this power as being only related to miracles. I think miracles is one of the manifestations of God's power. I think it's a very important manifestation of God's power. But Stephen's boldness and joy in the midst of his martyrdom were just as clearly signs of God's power in his life. Uh, in the Old Testament, when Joseph, you know, just didn't matter where he was, in the prison, didn't matter where he was, it seemed like everything his he touched was prospered. And the people recognize, wow, God's hand is in this. It's essentially God backing people up. Now, the presence of power is what amazed the Jews about Jesus. I think it's one of the signal distinguishing marks of Christianity in the book of Acts. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but in power. And so this, too, flows from that first fullness, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's how the book of Acts starts. Jesus said, you shall have power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. And so it was power for witness. And here's a question. Do you have power in your Christian walk? Do you have power? There are some Reformed people on the West Coast uh, whose uh, names will go unnamed who have been harping and harping against uh, the charismatic movement as being power religion and... Uh, I think some of their critiques are right on because charismatics typically have been over-preoccupied, I think, with the spiritual gifts. But as I'm reading some of these things, I'm thinking, man, it's almost as if these guys are saying we should have a powerless religion. We should desire the power of God. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Galatians chapter 3 says the same about the Spirit. Without His power, we cannot do anything. First uh, Thessalonians 1.5 says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And so he's talking about people who have the power of God to actually live the Christian life rather than just constantly studying about the Christian life. You know, the people who study about it, they've got a form of godliness, Paul said, but they deny the power thereof. And um, uh, uh, God's power is not just for apostles. This deacon had it. And Paul prays that every one of us would have it. He prays in Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What is it that enables some people to have endless hope despite all of the opposition and the loss of home and the loss of all kinds of things? They continue to radiate hope. It's the power of boldness and incredible courage. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled to do that. And this is the kind of power that I pray that God would anoint our congregation with, a powerful Christianity. And it could include miracles, but more importantly than that, the power to actually live our lives by faith. Brothers and sisters, Without the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, we will not succeed as a church. We're just going to be playing church. We're not going to be living out our Christianity. We need to be endued from on high by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to be in continual prayer for that. Well, finally, Stephen is described as being full of wisdom in verse 3, and then exercising that wisdom in verse 10. It's quite different from being full of knowledge. Knowledge is having the right facts in your head. Understanding is 
knowing how all of those facts should be fit together in a systematic way. And so systematic theology is understanding. Wisdom is knowing how to apply the knowledge and apply the understanding to the specific issues of life in a way that pleases God. That's godly, uh, that's godly wisdom. And there are liberal theologians who have far more knowledge than you or I probably will ever have, and maybe even far more understanding than we will have, but they do not have godly wisdom. And I'm sure some of these persecutors of Stephen may have had more knowledge and more things memorized than Stephen did, but they did not have godly wisdom. And I want you to turn with me, and we're going to end with this, uh, James chapter 3, where we're going to look at the contrast between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. James chapter 3, and beginning at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Notice that wisdom is practical. It's not simply understanding. Uh, Systematic theology is understanding, but the so what of theology and the transformation of theology, that is into the category of wisdom. Uh, Continuing on, verse 14, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Now there is the triad that we speak about, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, Earthly corresponds to the world, sensual to the flesh, demonic to the devil. And all three of those can give a kind of wisdom, the ability to apply knowledge and understanding to specifics of life, but it's self-serving. It does not come from above. It comes from the resources we have down here below. He says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace, by those who make peace. Notice several things about the passage. First of all, this wisdom is from above. It's another resource that does not come from below. It's God-given. We can't generate this. Five minutes before, and you've probably experienced this, five minutes before, you don't have a clue as to what you should do. And all of a sudden, the Lord opens your understanding, and you know what to do in that situation. It's something that comes from, we call it illumination, but it's wisdom from above. Secondly, this wisdom that Stephen was full of is under the authority of God. It speaks in verse 13 of the meekness of wisdom. The word meek was used by the Greeks to refer to a wild animal that had been tamed, a stallion that had been tamed to follow exactly where the master wanted. He was still powerful, still strong, but it's um, in the master's service, under Authority. Third, this wisdom is used in service, and you can see that with the words good conduct, works, and sown. God doesn't give wisdom in the abstract. He gives wisdom when and where it is needed, and once it is given, it has to be used or God's not going to pour in more wisdom. And this means that for Stephen to continue to be full of wisdom, it meant he was already applying in service the wisdom that God had given to him. Fourth, the wisdom transforms us, and you can see that in verse 17. Uh, The wisdom of the religious leaders came from the flesh, possibly from the devil um, as well, and it made them act very badly. The wisdom of Stephen was from God, and it produced several fruits, and this is how you can test wisdom. There are seven 
indicators of where the wisdom comes from. In fact, some scholars have said the seven um, uh, tests here are the seven pillars of wisdom that are talked about in Proverbs 9, verse 1, where he says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. If you don't have these seven pillars, your house of wisdom just comes crashing to the ground. So I just want to end by quickly looking at each one of these three. Verse 17 He says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Now, the order is very, very important here. It's first pure. If you started with um, the fourth one, willing to yield, instead of with purity, then you'd never have purity because you'd be constantly willing to yield to all of the wrong things, right? And so you've got to start with, uh, with purity. When people pretend to have wisdom and they have no holiness of life, no purity, no desire for purity, you can definitely question where that wisdom has come from. We've already seen there are other sources for wisdom, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Second characteristic he gives, peaceable. Some people are always looking for a fight with their theology. Now, sometimes fights come to us, you know, and there's nothing we can do about that, but Paul says, if it is possible... As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Romans 12, 18. We should not be delighting in fights. I think uh, General Robert E. Lee is a great example of this peaceableness. He did, fights came to him, but he was a peaceable man, even with his enemies. Uh, the third word is a little bit harder to nail down. It can have the meaning of gentleness, and depending on your version, it has nuances of being considerate, forbearing, not easily provoked. Well, again, you've probably known people who are brilliant people. But, man, they're anything but forbearing, anything but gentle. They're very easily provoked. And, again, you can question the source of this wisdom. That's not to say if people are provoked, they don't have any God-given wisdom. If you just think of it this way, these seven tests are seven legs upon which wisdom is walking. And, yeah, you can have one or two or three of those legs amputated off, and it's still wisdom from above. But, man, if there aren't any legs there... (laughs) You can question whether this is wisdom from above. It's dead. Um, Like James talks about faith without works being dead, um, wisdom without these fruits is dead as well. So gentleness. The fourth pillar of wisdom is a reasonableness, a willingness to listen, if need be, to yield, to admit wrong. He goes on to say, willing to yield. Now, the Greek literally means to be open to reason, And many times, people in their pride are not willing to give up their argument, even though they've got lousy reasons for why they're holding to this. It's just a pride issue. The old proverb goes, a wise man changes his mind, a fool never. Okay, so willingness to yield. Fifthly, he will be full of mercy. Why? Why would he show mercy to a person who's got a loused-up theology maybe does not have the wisdom to parent, does not have the wisdom to gain victory in his life, why would he be merciful to that person? It's because he realizes, apart from God's wisdom opening up the eyes of his understanding, he'd have a messed up life as well. In fact, he may recognize, you know, there may be some other messed up areas in my life the Spirit's just not shown me yet. And so he's merciful to this other person because he realizes it's God alone who can open his eyes. And so you can see there's a logic, even in the order in which James gives uh, these tests. Now, it's not just mercy. It says, full of mercy and good fruits. And so this test is, are the fruits of the Spirit present? Next characteristic of wisdom is without partiality. Literally, it means undecided. 
we should be undecided until we've got the facts. Now, some people have the attitude, I've got my mind made up, don't confuse me with the facts, I've got my position, I'm not going to leave this position, I don't care what you have to say. Well, that is anything but wisdom. Anything but wisdom. And once again, it's very easy for us to take the attitude that anybody that doesn't hold to our theology is a bunch of idiots. We should not take that attitude, especially if we've not studied the other idiotic, no, the other theology. And I've seen people who trash what we have to believe, and I've asked them, now, have you read anything based on our position, whatever position it is that they're, that they're dis discussing? Well, no, I haven't read anything. I said, really, please, just read it. And then if you disagree with it, that's great. But you do need to be undecided until you really know the facts that are out there. But, you know, we can so easily do the same thing and be hard on people who come from different perspectives without investigating. I've learned a lot from brothers who come totally outside of our camp, and I think sometimes we can become so closed in, we don't want to hear the facts from other perspectives. And then finally, James says that it's without hypocrisy. Now, back to Acts chapter 6. The trouble with those Jews that were opposing Stephen was not that they were sinners, because Stephen was a sinner too. It was not that they had lower IQ. It had nothing to do with IQ. It had nothing to do with the fact that they maybe had a, a poor upbringing or other excuses. Their problem was that they were depending upon the resources that come from below. And Stephen offered them resources that come from Christ and they rejected it. Okay, that was the main difference, below and above. And the, re the, the, the biggest difference between Stephen and the other people who were Christians, who were not full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of power, again, is not because they lacked any other giftings. It was because they were not claiming the things that Christ has already purchased for them. It's exactly the same. On June 6, 1981, Doug Witt and his bride, Sylvia, um, had to travel, and they, this was their honeymoon day. They got to the hotel kind of late, so they were ushered into their um, bridal suite in the wee hours of the morning, and the guy left, and they were looking around, and all they could see is a sofa, a chair, and a table, and so they were going to call down and see if there was a mistake, and... Uh, Doug said, now just wait a second. He looked at the couch and he says, oh boy, okay, it's a pull-out sofa. So they didn't want to take the time to get a new room and um, find out what was going on. They slept on the sofa, had kind of um, sore backs the next morning, and they complained to the management. They said, you know, this is supposed to be a luxury suite, uh, bridal suite. What's going on here? And the guy was kind of puzzled. He says, well, didn't you open the door in there? And his eyes got big. He thought it was a closet. His eyes got big and chagrined. He went back up there. He opened the door, and here's this beautiful, huge bedroom in there. And they had, they had fruit baskets and chocolate baskets and champagne, and uh, they had all kinds of things. And so he had the resources, but he simply did not open the door. Well, here, Stephen has given to us five doors, and he's opened those doors. He's fully utilized all of the resources that are behind those doors. And what Acts 6 is saying is we need to open those doors as well. <clears throat> Every single day, you need to start that day by saying, Lord, I do not want to operate. I do not want to go to work. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to do anything in my own fleshly strength. Please, Lord, give me your spirit. Give me your wisdom. Give me your empowering. Give me your faith. 
I want to be walking in the supernatural resources that Jesus Christ has purchased for me. And so my admonition to you this morning is don't be like these frustrated Jews of chapter 6 by going out in your own strength. Open the doors to your apartment. Turn on the electricity. Don't live in the shadows. Okay, live in the glory of God's fullness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the glory of the fullness that you have provided for us. I thank you for that phrase, how much more that occurs over and over in the Bible, and yet we live in how much less. Forgive us, Father, for that. Forgive us for failing to open up the doors of our uh, bridal suite into the, uh, the glories that Jesus Christ has purchased for us by His grace. Forgive us, Father, where we just trudge along uh, trying to keep Your law in our own strength, sometimes even avoiding that, and just uh, giving up and living according to our own desires. I pray, Father, that we would enter into the joy indescribable and full of glory, the, uh, the river of your delights that flow from your throne. And I thank you that you've called it a river and not a trickle. Father, I pray that each one here would enter into the fullness of a confident Christianity and abandon the frustration of an empty life. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.